Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. To another episode of Music Life Radio, I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Lenny Breedlove, also known as Lynn, is a visionary who has been shaping revolutionary art throughout life. Lenny was a front person of the first American outdike punk band Tribate, which promoted queer, transgender, multiracial, and working class visibility. Lenny went on to become a notable solo performer and toured the world with the one person performance show Lenny Breedloves One Freak Show Less Rock More Hilarity. In 2009, while on tour, Lenny's mother had a stroke, leading Lenny to retire from the hectic tour schedule and begin to provide caregiving service for mom. Now Lenny has found another way to provide community service as the founder of Homobiles, which is a non-commercial, 24-7 queer car service for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community, as well as for others around San Francisco who need safe, dependable rides. Lenny talks to MLR's Eric Kaur about punk rock, sobriety, the evolution of self, work on the Breedlove memoirs, the importance of service, and finding our own role in the current world of shared economies, and community-based giving. The pending memoirs combine both Lenny's roots as a punk rock transgender anarchist and Lenny's mom's life, which includes growing up in Nazi Germany and the intersection of those two worlds. Lenny is also the author of Godspeed, Now a Movie, and One Freak Show. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio, featuring a conversation between Eric Kaur and Lenny Breedlove. This is Eric Kaur from the band Gunpowder, and I'm here today interviewing Lynn or Lenny Breedlove, who many of you might know from the band Tribate, or have seen on tour with the all-female group Sister Spit. Uh, she's also a novelist and did a film called Godspeed based on that novel. And what I'd like to start with is, Lenny, could you talk about how you've gone from punk rock, anarchist, Tribate, to the projects that you're currently working on and, and, and create a bridge for us to take us there. In 1990, uh, January 1st, 1990, that was my first day of clarity. I quit doing drugs and drinking because it was kind of a wreck. And uh, I fell in, well, I was a bike messenger at the time, fairly new at being a bike messenger. And um, I fell in with this gang of dykes. A lot of sober dykes, but just dykes in general. Punk rock dykes, mohawks, facial piercings. You'd walk down Valencia, they'd all be popping out of doors and be like, hey, Spike, hey, Spike, hey, Spike. Everybody's name Spike. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and um, suddenly we were in a band. And then we were like swinging chainsaws and rubber dicks. And we were like, oh, yeah, you're a fucking rapist? How about this? Gang castrate, motherfucker. And we were terrible. And we were punk rock. We called it punk rock because we were so terrible. And then we just had a lot of skits to distract people from how terrible we were. So, um, If I may, had you ever 
played music before you nah, got sober? Nah, uh-uh. oh, so this was an offspring of sobriety then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was that was all everything was a brand new life. The day I got sober it was a completely different situation. Yeah, but I mean, for that, people who've never seen Tribe Eight before, one of the things I always remember about seeing you is is you'd come up on stage and have this incredibly powerful, ma- almost a masculine aura, but you'd also have your shirt off and this giant, I would say, at least a 12-inch dildo hanging out of your pants. Rubber dick. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. <laughs> but it was, it was uh, I guess to use the term, it was, it was such a great gender fuck. That right. would be the best way I could describe it. It was great because there was a merging, a balancing, and an unbalancing all at the same time that really felt like just drove the entire experience. Well, yeah, I mean, it was confusing, I think, to a lot of people. And I, I kind of liked that, the upset of, like, like, the bands that had influenced me before were, like, Black Flag. That mm-hmm. was my band. You know, that was my favorite band. I would, like, yell along to, you know, Black Flag in my room with a beer can in my hand as a microphone. And then, and it was always these four white guys, four white guys, four white guys, you know? And I was like, yeah, 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 I want to be like them. And then I was like, and not like them, but like them, but like me, them. So that's when the gender fuck thing started to emerge. Also, we were goopy and we had a sense of humor, unlike most feminists. Like San Francisco feminists are, were hilarious. The punk dyke version we were making fun of feminists all the time, and we were making fun of the dudes that we uh, revered. You know, we're like, um, wait, so you're the king of punk rock, but there's no king in punk rock because it's anarchy. So really, you're <laughs> supposedly about uh, equality and all this crap, but really, you just want to blow job after the show just like any other dude. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> Did you ever hear what Neil Young said about punk rock? No. He said the biggest problem punk rock ever had, I, I could be, I'm not quoting this perfectly, was that no one ever wanted to be rock stars more than the punk rockers did, yet they were the ones who said they didn't want to be rock stars more than any of the rock, anybody ever came before them. And it kind of, to, to piggyback off what you're saying there about, you know, they didn't want to be the rock stars, yet they wanted to be the rock stars, you know. It's, well, yeah, who doesn't want to be a rock star? Everybody does. Well, there was this whole, there were several different definitions of what punk was. Like in the 80s and when I was coming up, it meant that you were drunk lying in a, pu- a pool of fucking puke with a needle hanging out of your arm. That was a punk. And you had cool clothes on. You had some plaid, really tight pants and some cool boots for kicking the shit out of skinheads. Or maybe if you were a skinhead, it was for kicking the shit out of some, uh, you know, it was always right. that. And then when I was becoming a punk, it was like a person who had some ethics and wanted to take some action to change some shit and you want to look around and go who's our allies who's the common enemy and how are we going to fuck this up and you're not going to be able to fuck it up when you're fucking drowning in your own puke so pull your fucking head out stop snogging that babe and let's like fucking put our attention on the problem so if we look at sobriety as is a political action in and of itself as a political statement, were the people in your band also sober or? Yeah, well, me and Silas, who at the time was Flipper, we were sober. And then there was Mahia, she wasn't, Leslie wasn't, and Kat definitely wasn't. And then Kat actually started to partake a, a little more than 
was going to work. I mean, we were getting ready to record, and mm-hmm. she was just like, out there. <laughs> and she had this uh, thing rigged up that was like a recording device that was somehow hooked up to her drum kit, and she would change, like, the beat all the time. Like, of every four, the signature or whatever. I don't even know. Oh, within a song. Yeah, like, we would be, like, in the song. And we would, she'd be going along, wah, 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 and then she'd be like, blap, 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 blap. We're like, no, 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 you got to go. We were on the blap, blap, blap part, and now you're going, she's like, it's syncopated. It's jazz. And we're like, no, this is punk. No, no, this is punk rock. And no, wait, 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 wait. And she would stop and, like, start all the recording stuff over again. And like, wait, stop, this went, and, and then we, everybody had to stop in the middle of the song 52 times, and we were like, we have to record Friday. <laughs> so, can we get through a song? And anyway, so then we finally ended up having to get somebody else, and, um, and then and we ended up getting Slade, who was uh, sober, and had been in bands for a long time, and had a drummer die tattoo, and so then there was three of us. So whenever, wherever we were in Europe, or wherever we were in some squat, uh, would be like surrounded by like guys passed out in corners in like some old castle, you know. And we'd be like, "You guys, let's, let's go um, have a meeting." So we'd sit in the hallway on a, on the stairs and go, "Hi, Lynn. I'm an alcoholic," <laughs> <laughs> and we'd tell each other what we thought about stuff for about 20 minutes, and then we'd go rock out. Because yeah, I remember your band was pr- really significant and just kind of unsettling a lot of the norms that people had. Regarding punk rock, regarding women, regarding feminism, which was very cool. Right. I mean, there were so many elements, and I think we kind of wanted to be that, like, punk rock United Colors of Benetton, where everybody had a say, everybody had a mic. Like, at first it was only me. I had the mic, because I was a singer. And then I would blah, 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 just blurting out stupid shit, you know? Like, I was, like, retard. Well, okay, you can't say that anymore, but I was. I felt like I really I was brain damaged mm. from years of drinking and drugging and not having like a community with any kind of consciousness at all. And here I had the mic. I was the spokesperson. And then people would be like in the back going like, no, uh, no, that, we don't agree. And then after they'd be pissed, <laughs> no, why did you say that? That's not what we think. And I was like, what we think? Why don't y'all get mics? Everybody mics. I would tell a sound guy every time, we need five microphones, everybody. One, two, three, up in the back, too. I want one for the headset for the drummer. Please, thank you. And if anything, anybody has a disagreement, you just yell, blurt out what you think. So that's how we became like kind of this wall of gnarly energy we were just like we all had different ideas we were like argue on stage and so we would say yeah fuck this we're like fuck you i'm a dude no fuck you castrate rapists no no fuck you that's fucking violent no fuck you eat me suck my dick ah and everybody what just happened Back.
There was no monolith. Yeah. There was no united front. But, but there was a united front in that. Well, the music gave it that. Because mm. when you would play, there was an energy behind the music that drove it. And we obviously were having a good time with each other. Yeah. We obviously loved each other, and we had a good time. Well, the uh, audience was having fun, regardless of what was going on. I remember going to Tribe 8 shows, and it was, there was a, just a great, there was a freedom to destabilizing these things. Right, exactly. And it's stuff that people generally, especially in that time, just didn't talk about. And there you were not only talking about it, but doing it and making a statement about it. But in a, in, in a, in a way, it was a, little, it was a lot of fun. And it was also, I remember even when, when you would do, a, we were talking about this earlier, just doing like a Radar Love. And when you'd sing the line, No More Speed, I'm Almost There, I always crack up. <laughs> I think that's so awesome. I just, they, did they write that for you? you know, it's, that was my favorite song when I was a kid. That yeah. was my, I, I was living the dream when we sang that song. Yeah. And the bass player would always be like, I hate this song. It's the same note over and over. Go shut it. The people love it. It is an awesome song. Do it for song. the kids. <laughs> anyway so how what's interesting is at that time i was well what's interesting to me anyway is at that time i was crazy i had a lot of anger i had been stepping my feelings about some shit that happened to me as a girl uh 10 years earlier that was like confusing. And then I read some shit, like an article about some frat boys who had some mattresses lined up upstairs in the frat house and how they would get chicks really drunk at these parties. And then they would just line them up and bang them, you know? And I was like, wait a fucking minute. That's, I felt like that was kind of what happened to me. And that's why I ended up being a speed freak. Cause I was like, I will be awake and I will be paying attention. And ain't nobody sneaking up on my ass anymore. So when I read that article, I was like, Oh, I suddenly felt like a solidarity with other women. Again, and, and I had my common enemy that I needed to like let my shit out on through art. And get up on stage and fucking swing some big old giant knives and chainsaws and machetes and just bring all kinds of like cutting implements <laughs> on stage all the time. And uh, I decided that Dudes were the problem. And of course, there was always like great guys that we would play with. You know, there was like, we toured with MDC, with Dave. He was always like, yay, for, you know, he would tell the kids to buy the Tribe 8 shirts and they would go, okay. And they didn't want to like Tribe 8. They did whatever Dave said. And, uh, but, Dave, Dave, he has, kind of has that way about him, too. You know, yeah, well, Dave has just idolized him. And, um, but the point is, is like, I thought guys were the problem. Guys are the problem, straight guys are the problem. And every now and then I would meet a straight guy that I was like, oh, that guy's cool. That says that guy, says that guy, that guy, that guy. And says my dad. But still, guys are the problem. You know, so, um, and straight people, it's all their fault. They don't get it. They don't like me. They don't, you know, wham. If it weren't for them, I could be president right now and running shit. They won't let me. That kind of victim shit. But I, I wouldn't get on the mic and say, like, I'm a big victim. I would get on, get on the mic and be like, Fuck you, I will fucking kill a motherfucker. And people were like, oh, goody, angry dyke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody want to hear that, like, Wah, you hurt me, crap. They want to hear, like, I will fuck you up. You will never do that again. Good luck doing that with whatever's left, you know? And so a lot of people had a lot of that anger, and they were really glad to have a voice for that. But that was 1990. And where we're now is 2013. That was a long time ago. It's 23 years. And along the way, you know, a lot of kids would be like, when's Tribe 8 coming to our town? And we'd be like, just start your own fucking band. Why are you waiting for us? 
you know, and there was a whole wave of young women that were funny, hilarious. They didn't necessarily weren't like consummate musicians. Some of them were. You know, Bonfire Madigan, she's amazing. Uh, Madigan and Sherry Ozeki, they played like a cello and a fucking stand-up bass. And, it would, you know, they would get this these instruments in front of a bunch of punk rockers and the kids would just look at them like, wow, what's going to happen? What are those things? You know, <laughs> they had never been to the symphony or anything. But anyway, and then they'd rock out. But um, now... But since my mom had a stroke and I, I couldn't tour anymore, and I, since then, you know, I've done a lot of things and a lot of art, and I evolved, and I was like, okay, I'm not a dyke, I'm a man. Okay, I'm a man-hating man. Okay, like, there's a whole solo show about the complexities of gender, and let me duct tape down the breasticles and, like, piss in a bucket standing up and stuff, just like easy laugh, you know. Yeah. There's a just guaranteed laugh. You stand up, if you don't have a dick and you stand up and piss in a bucket, you will get laughs. So, that was my dream come true. Just, I don't have to compete with these other four motherfuckers and their loud-ass music. Everybody's going to hear all my hilarities, and here's my, and I learned, oh, you know what I did? I Googled how to write a joke. Because I was telling jokes, which intuitively, but they weren't getting the, all the laughs at the right spots that I wanted, mm-hmm. and I Googled how to write a joke, and boom, I was like, oh, there's a setup, there's a punchline, and the punchline has to be delivered in a certain way. So, I did that, and oh boy, the show got funnier. But then, once I started driving around in the homobile. I Can got, you say what homobile is first? Homobiles, homobiles is a queer ride service. It's a community ride service for the LGBT community and its allies. We take women and queers, drag queens, people that can't get a ride because of their perceived gender or sexuality. Or if they do get a ride, it's uncomfortable. You know, because people are throwing shade or acting like there's something wrong with you or even kicking you out of a cab or beating you up on the bus or whatever. If, so, I, if I may, too, I think sometimes people get this impression that San Francisco, the Bay Area, is a safe haven for fags, dykes, yeah. queers. And it's we simply, do. there's simply more of us together, but it's not necessarily safe all the time. And I think that... Nothing else. And you're providing... another level of safety for people you're providing another way for people to get home safely where for people who may not have that access of it right well when i first started it i started it for chicks because i was at the fem conference in oakland and then girls were like oh goody rides you know because i had a car Hmm. so i drove them back and forth in the event of the hotel and all of a sudden i realized oh i could do this you know for a buck a minute and and i tried to get women at the lusty and like I was, how am I going to get the word out to these fams and girls in general and stuff? And I ended up just kind of looping in front of the queer clubs, and all of a sudden, bags started jumping in the car. And pretty soon, drag queens. And then you would pull up, and a drag queen would, you know, unfold herself out of this tiny Mitsubishi, and there'd be a magnet <laughs> on the side that was all Moe's get hose where they needs to go. And everybody would be like, whoa, whoa, what terrorist just get out? What is that? What are you doing? And pretty soon, everybody was calling homobiles, which was amazing. And I was like, this is perfect. I love it. It kept me from being depressed about my mom's stroke. You know, I had the perfect, like, five-minute conversation with queers, with my community. Sometimes a really deep conversation, you know, with people about deeper stuff on longer rides. But And taking care of people that were really high. It was a way to repay my karmic debt. I'm sure I was super annoying many times. And also, no one was there that one time to take care of me when I was really high. So it was my way of solving that problem yet again, only this time not with the chainsaw. 
and not with a bunch of anger, but with a bunch of love. And I felt like this is the evolved punk journey, you know? Not that I'm involved, but it's the evolution. And then I realized that I had not just a bunch of queers and not just a bunch of women, but a bunch of straight people, straight guys, straight white men, the one that I thought was all the problem, that would be want a ride somewhere because they were going to go, they were a surgeon and they were going to go do free surgery on the feet of some people in some town in Africa where the trucks didn't have headlights and they're walking on dirt roads and they were always getting run over by trucks on their feet. And so this guy is a podiatrist and he was going to go and do free surgery every year. That's what he did. And then other people who like would take kids to Africa to build houses or dig wells or whatever and just give. And I realized all these people are relating to what homobiles is because they believe in shared economy because they believe in community, because they believe in the intersection of cultures. And I realize that I and we, queers or women or dykes or punks or whoever it is that I feel part of, bike messengers, whatever, at any given moment, can't do this alone. Not only, well, we could, but it's not going to be, it's not going to make a very big dent. And that all these different people that were getting in the homobile were saying, yeah, I'm straight, but I totally stand up for what you're doing. It's about us taking care of each other. And I, don't, I don't know if you mentioned before, too, you mentioned that, which is kind of another anarchistic element to the whole business model, is people pay what they can right. or don't if they can't. That's right. Payment is not a requirement of service. Yeah. And um, you donate whatever you want. There's a suggested donation, but you don't have to give it to us and... And even if you never have money, we could come and get you all the time. All you have to do is be on time, be where you say you're going to be, be flexible, be willing to homo shuttle, you know, which means we already have someone in the car, we're headed your way, we'll grab you on the way, be standing outside, boom, you jump in, we take you there. But if you say you're going to be there and then we get there and we're waiting 10 minutes and you're like, oh, cancel, never mind. Do that a few times and we'll be like, look, you're not the only pebble on the beach. We're trying to get about 32 other queers and other people, places, so you just threw a wrench in that. So you keep doing that, and you better get a Munich pass. <laughs> so, you know, we're not doormats, right. but I feel like uh, what's beautiful about it is that when you, when you give extra donations for a short ride, and somebody else has a long ride and all they have is a small donation, you two people are connected even though you don't know who the other person is. You feel good about giving. Mm -hmm. The other person, we have to practice receiving, too. We're all a bunch of fucking damaged little islands. They're like, I don't need your help, because if you help me, along after the help comes a skillet upside the head. So fuck you. I don't need your help. You know? And we don't want to receive. We don't want to receive love. So this is really great practice for that. Standing on line, in my blue
ago and there was a commercial for Pac Bell, I think. It was like the tagline was, We don't know you, but we love you. Really, that is what creates community. Community is a bunch of people that you don't even fucking know that you're somehow connected to because we according to our need and what we can give. Whatever you got, whatever you can give, whatever you need, let's all make it happen kind of thing. Right, right. Need and ability and just Instead of like everybody's like, I'm going to power through school and I'm going to get this giant debt and then I'm going to fucking go be a professional and then I'm going to go downtown and then I'm going to have my little fortress with my little 2.3 kids and then me, me, I, I, you know, it's $50,000 wedding and then ends in divorce 10 years later and what's so great about that rugged individualism crap? Yeah. The point is that I learned a lot about who's the fucking enemy in the last 23 years. I think my biggest enemy is my brain. My brain comes up with all kinds of stupid explanations for stuff. And what really helps me today is to just say, I don't know. Well, I think also, you know, we construct reality based on our experiences. And getting sober in that time period, you would come in with some pretty intense experiences. And there was a period of processing through those experiences. And it seems that this process of home appeal has been really healing because it's giving you a whole different set of experiences to reconstruct reality on and to see people and a lot of people in a different way. Yeah. Well, also when my mom had her stroke and we were in Berlin, I had to fly. I was on tour. I had to fly to Berlin and get my mom. And I was in Berlin talking to doctors and lawyers, insurance people in like three languages all the time. And then I would go in and like deal with my mom, who was like instantly incapacitated. She was changed, you know. So there was like, then I would go out in the hallway and like cry and blah. And then it just, it broke my heart open. Can you give, give a little foundation of the family history too? Because you mentioned Oh, my mom. This. Oh, yeah. I'm writing a book. We already were working on this book before my mom had her stroke. Uh, oh, so you two were collaborating. Yeah, she had been writing her memoirs and I've been writing mine. Okay. And then my idea was that we were going to like mesh them. And I had some interest in it. And I was in Paris writing my part. The connection is my mom was raised in Nazi Germany and then I was a queer punk anarchist. Like, how did, how did one come out of the other? Well, my mom was like, look, I had to pledge allegiance to the fucking swastika. Then, then the commies came in and they told me that, you know, I had to go work in a factory. And then I got out of there and I went and married your dad and I went and lived under, you know, supposed democracy. And Kennedy went sailing the day that the wall went up and pretended he didn't know anything about that, and I never got to see my mom again. So if they want you to salute the fucking flag in the morning, you don't have to do that. You do not have to pledge allegiance to any flag, because as far as I'm concerned, governments are full of shit. So she was in Berlin during Nazi Germany. Yeah, so well, she was just there, outside of Berlin. But she was, so she was there when, when basically when, when the Soviets got there and... And the, yes. the collapse and everything. Yes, and, yes. She was and, 16 oh, when the war was over. Okay, so pretty much all the kids during that time period, your mom would have gone to Nazi schools, Nazi churches, and all the kids had to participate. Everything was pretty much, everything was Nazi, right? I mean, yeah. it was... Like, they, they got rid of any teachers that didn't, weren't uh, with the party. 
Yeah, I mean, even, even the churches, and they'd take down the crosses and they'd put a swastika up. My mom's thing about church, she didn't really talk about it very much. She was like, we didn't really go to church, but sometimes she would take me to like a Lutheran church and we would light a candle for my German grandma. But it, was, it, was but a, it wasn't like a big, like, heavy-duty religious yeah. thing. But also, they were in the North. They weren't so like the Bavarians. Bavarians were very, like, Catholic. They were very Catholic, yeah. So, but the point was that my mom was, like, had been through basically large-scale political ritual abuse. Yeah. And she's post-traumatic stress. Bombs falling on her head. She's hiding out in the basement. Buildings are burning down around her head. And she passed that on to me. But she also passed on a lot of consciousness about how cruel people can be to each other and how governments lie and do all kinds of fucked up shit to torture people. And the people kind of just get swept up in this machine. I mean, she showed me when I was tiny pictures of when the wall was being put up by the people on the east side. They got like guys that build walls with the mortar and wall themselves in, mm -hmm. you know, or, or it'd be a woman jumping out of like a third story building and people like holding a blanket for like a little old lady jumping out of the third story building. I have some posters on my wall right now that I got from when I was in Berlin. There's a, a West German soldier that looks like totally like, you know, our stereotypical image of a Nazi, mm -hmm. you know, short blonde hair, blue eyes. He's got the modern German army uniform on mm -hmm. and he's looking over his shoulder like all surreptitious and he's holding open this rolled up barbed wire and there's a little boy on the other side and he's opening it for the little kid to jump through and then the other one is the guy who got really famous who was a famous german hero later who was on the east german side on the communist side and they had put these guys as guards as the wall was going up, you know, to keep people on mm. one side or the other. And he's, there's this really famous picture of him hurtling over this wad of barbed wire as he throws his rifle off his shoulder. And that picture's up in my room too, because I want to embody that. I want to help people that are being oppressed. And I want to throw off any like bullshit privilege power the tools of power that you want to give me. Okay, so I'm white. Okay, so I'm middle class. Okay, I had an education. I'm well-traveled. I speak a lot of languages. So you could put me in a position of power, and I could just be as racist and classist as I want to be. But um, I'm not. I don't want to do that. It seemed like your mom escaped a situation with incredible amount of consciousness and strength where I, it's, I can imagine other people being crushed by that experience that same experience that she went through and it seems like she translated a lot of that to you she did she took she took me to europe in 67 the first time before that she made sure that i read the diary of Anne frank and then we went to see Anne frank's house when i was little like i already had, was informed with all this stuff you know she took me to holocaust memorials and museums and everything like she worked really hard her whole life to find some kind of redemption she i know she didn't want to go to her grave without having to dealt with this shit you know i feel like marrying an american was one way to do that did she have other family that was involved with the war in any way or yeah my uncle herbert when he he was probably like in his 
late 40s when toward the end when they were conscripting like little children and mm -hmm. old men because that was all that was left and they got uncle herbert in there and they would put him you know just like wear a suit and your street shoes and um here's a grenade launcher and a fucking swastika armband good luck buddy so anyway the communists were were coming and closing in at that time and they took him prisoner and took him up to Russia to camp, mm -hmm. I guess it was like, I don't know if it was Siberia or just some random POW camp. They kept him up there for a couple of years, and he ended up walking home. They oh, let wow. everybody go. Those old guys, they were like, okay, oh you're, you're like not really an important war criminal, but <laughs> bye. And he walked all the way home from Russia, and oh when he got back, he said to um, my grandma, I guess he said, uh, well, I can eat carrots now. Because I guess they gave him a lot of carrot soup, and you're starving, you'll eat anything. So he's like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's all I know about any connection to the world. Yeah. And my grandfather, he wanted to join the Nazi party um, because he had a cannery. And if you joined the Nazi party, you could have like a special contract with the soldiers and you can make like k rations you know oh yeah for business people it was a bonanza yeah and so and that apparently was the biggest argument that my grandparents ever had and my grandparents almost my mom thought they were going to get a divorce because she was like are you out of your fucking mind hell no and he's like what it could be good money for us and you know blah blah, blah. he wasn't thinking along political lines right. he was saying he was a businessman and my my grandma was like what they're doing is wrong, and I don't want you having anything to do with those people. So he didn't. And they ended up, they came and they took their American car. They had an American car every year, a new American car, like a Ford or something. Mm -hmm. And so the Nazi party came in and finally took their car and was like, we need this. You know, other, you know, little cash and prizes that you would get if you were a member of the party they didn't get. But right. Whatever. Less German guilt to fucking deal with. Yeah, and your your mom probably escaped a lot of in, more indoctrination she would have got if they had gone deeper into the party. Yeah, I mean, they wanted my mom to wear this little, like, uh, I guess the Nazi youth, you know, they had mm -hmm. the German, they had the girls and boys. They both had different groups. Yeah. But, um, Bundesmädel, I guess they were called. And they had to wear this little uniform after school. You know, my mom's kind of a fancy school, all-girl all school. And she would always tell them just a bunch of different excuses why she didn't want to participate. Because they had to do sports and stuff, and my mom's girly girl. And she, you know, she's like 12 or 11, and she's not really, like, trying to understand all the reason beyond what they're indoctrinating these kids, you know. But mm -hmm. she's like, I don't want to do that. So she was like, oh, I'm on my period. Oh, we can't afford a uniform. And the leader would be like, uh, I think think you can afford a uniform you go to this school, you know? Or, I don't think you have your period every week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, the, like, the truant officer or whatever would come to my mom's house and tell my grandmother, um, Yota doesn't want to participate. And basically, it was like Harper Valley PTA, which my mom was the same way with me at school, which was like, oh, really? Well, if she says she's on her period, she's on her period, pal. <laughs> Later. <laughs> uh, come from a long line of gnarly death bitches, yeah. It sounds like you and your mom have a pretty cool relationship. Yeah. You post a lot on Facebook about what you, the two of you have gone through and are going through. And what, what a reason I enjoy reading it is that it's very 
I really feel a connection to your experience when I read this because you share what's going on for you emotionally. You'll talk about a conversation you've had. You'll talk about experience that the two of you share and you'll process it. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff and myself included. I don't, I'm not, I don't even process with people half the time on, on half the shit I should. Yet you just put it out there, but it's in a way that's so elo eloquent and it's real, but it's earthy. And it makes me feel more of a human connection, not just with you, but people in general. And I, I really appreciate that. It's, it really touches me. Well, you know, I never thought that Facebook or MySpace or, you know, a piece of plastic mm -hmm. would help me feel more connected. But when I was in Berlin, um, I had friends in Berlin, but, you know, every night I would go to this cafe at the end of the day and I would type something in Facebook and I only had like a few friends on Facebook and I would get these answers back and I just felt like I wasn't alone. It was the global village that I had experienced as a punk. Mm -hmm. We would travel across the intellectual and cultural wasteland and all of a sudden you'd arrive in, you know, bumfuck Kansas in front of some club with some neon beer sign and a bunch of punks in front of it and you'd be like, oh, it's our people. You know, and there we were, everywhere, all over the world. And I feel like that saved me at that moment. Yes, you do need face-to-face -face connection with people. And a lot of times people say they're going to go to the show, but they can't get away from Facebook because they're stuck staring at a screen. <laughs> they're just like, I can't stop looking at the colored lights. But um, I think because I knew I wasn't going to be able to tour anymore, I'd have to stay and take care of my mom, that I use it as like a virtual, like a room a spoken word scenario where instead of speaking it i'm just going to write it and i'm going to have instant response just like you would if you were standing up reading to a group of people i feel like that and homobiles has really saved me it makes me feel like i'm not alone up here in my crazy head you know coming up with all kinds of weird ideas i can spew them out sometimes i get the response back that makes me know oh yeah that was like weird and you didn't communicate the idea the way you wanted to, just try again. Why don't you edit, repost, wait, just delete the whole freaking thing. You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, I need to write. And really, I prefer to write for performance. And I feel like I can't perform right now. So that's where it goes. Just a thought, I'm just throwing this out there, but I did some writing on a project I was working on. One of the things I did was I, I kept a diary of everything that was going on during the period. And then I, I, I inserted those reflections in at different times through it. And, and you were talking about the book you're writing with your mom that you were writing. And there was this catalyst of her stroke and, and kind of where you're going through now. And, you know, a lot of what you, you post, I think that would have a lot of value being part of that. Because it is. It's going to be the glue that holds the different stories together. Yeah. It'll be the, like, in the now mm -hmm. and then the flashbacks, yeah. you know, between, like, my mom's life and my life. It won't be linear at all because even though my name is Lenny, I don't do anything in a linear <laughs> manner. <laughs> but, yeah, it's totally been a gift. It yeah. has been a gift because... Yeah, we've been through the things that mothers and daughters, even if I'm not now a son or whatever, deal with. It's gnarly. And to, for us to um, to have this part where I'm taking care of her, and thank God I have like years of not being completely insane on drugs and alcohol anymore, I just feel like I'm able to show up for this part. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
yeah, it is a gift for both of us. And it'd be super amazing if there was a book out with my mom as one of the authors before she died that I could just show her and go, look, mom, you did it. Because mm-hmm. I feel like one of the things women did up until like the 70s and 80s was they sacrificed their careers, their identity, everything for their kids and their family. I know my mom was a frustrated actress and a frustrated writer. She wrote great letters to mm-hmm. people. All her friends are like, your mom is the best letter writer. And I encouraged her to write her, her stories down. But, um, you know, if she had been born a little later, she might have had a different life. So I guess that's what I feel like I'm giving her right now. That's really cool. I, I know my grandmother was kind of from that generation, the World War II generation. And when she passed away, all of a sudden, there were all these things we found out about her mm. that she never talked about. She never talked about herself. She never talked about her life. She never talked about her dreams. She never talked about her. And I, and I felt really bad about that because I remember when she was getting older, I was trying to make those connections and it was, too, it was kind of too late to make it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really nice that you're actually stepping up and doing that and helping her get that out there. It's really cool. I mean, on some level, she'll never really, she'll never get it or understand it, you know, in the way that she would have before or the way that I will get it. But she'll be able to see that her name is on a book, and she'll she'll understand that we accomplished something awesome together. When it's it's, I think it's just amazing that you're actually in a space in your life where you're able to spend this time with her. It it is a creative space too. It's 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 a caregiving space, but it's a creative caregiving space. It's a loving space, and and you're just incorporating so many things into it and making it work.
top of that, which I don't know if we mentioned, but didn't you say there's something close to 20 volunteers involved at this mm-hmm, point? Right. So this is a big operation. Yeah. This is not something that you just do in your spare time. No, it's a nonprofit. It's a pro- it's a proposed California nonprofit. It's incorporated. It's legit. We have a Yerba Buena Center art exhibit for the next three months. It's going to be up. So you walk into the main entrance. It's off to the left in a big glassed-in room where you can sit in a little pink Cadillac. And there's video. And there's an NPR show about homobiles and trading cards with drag queens on them and all kinds of cool shit. So but people- I think, oh, I was going to say that, like, talking about, like, the aging mom thing, there's a million people out there that are dealing with the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they're really, somebody said the lines, oh, you just have to puke and do a lot of, like, you know, internal, you know, just looking at your shit. I, I'm not looking at my shit in a vacuum. I'm looking at my shit publicly so that everybody else can go, oh, yeah, my mom's sick, too. Or, oh, wow, I thought my parents were going to be my parents forever, but actually now they're my children. Oh, who told me? Nobody told me. You know, so really I want to be able to give voice to people mm-hmm. that don't talk about this stuff. And since I don't have any shame, I have no problem talking about stuff that other people don't talk about. But also um, to be of service in that way and to be of service in the homobile way, uh, I think it's just such an amazing gift to be able to to give to the community in all these different ways and to be able to receive all, like I cannot function if I didn't have like about 20 people that were like helping me with the plumbing and and helping me with the dog and like helping me run homobiles and like. On top of all this, you stopped smoking. Oh, yeah. And. Well, I was only able to do that because I have so much love and support from my community to go through this gnarly shit. So I would say to people out there that are like, I don't want to talk about this. I want to go through this privately. It's too weird to talk about that by talking about it, you open yourself up to love and support and make yourself stronger so that you can handle shit. And I, th- I think, you know, even going to 12-step meetings, we learn to talk about shit that people don't talk about. And there's something about being in a room of people who may or may not be strangers. You may know some of them, you may not know all of them. But just putting out something, it starts to lose power. It starts. To, there's something about keeping something internally, holding on to it, clinging to it. It just be, it feels bigger than us. And it's, I mean, you're really, you're, you're kind of giving voice to a conversation that people should be having and just oftentimes don't. Well, should. Whatever should. Could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if somebody wanted to get involved with Homobile. Homobiles. Homobile is a Danish gay cell phone company, by the way. So Homobiles. Homobiles. Queer Ride Service San Francisco. Okay, if, they, if somebody who is local wanted to they get involved. They would go online and go to the fan page on Facebook, or they would go to homobiles.org. Okay. Now. That's homobiles. Homobiles. Yeah, not okay. homomobiles or homomomomomomomo. <laughs> you start sounding like a Harley at that point. You know, it's like homobiles. Like, Mo's getting hoes where they needs to go. Dollar or two a minute. Doe to doe, that's doe to doe, not bow to bow, yo, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> this is, you've now, you have experience, you started Lickety Split Messenger Service mm-hmm. when you got sober. So you weren't, you went from bike messenger to dispatcher running a bike messenger place. Yeah. And I think that's when we first met, somewhere around that time. Right. And, uh. You were a boy with a guitar. I was a queer boy with his guitar playing punk rock and. It was it was unsettling to a few people. 
It was. We were confused <laughs> by you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and now you've gone and you've created homemobiles. Right. And if somebody's listening to this and they're listening to it and they're in Detroit, Seattle, New York, I don't know, Mobile, Alabama, and they're listening to this and they go, this sounds like something really amazing. Is there anything you could say to them? Because I know this isn't easy and this doesn't just happen. I mean, you put a lot of work into this and you put a lot of energy into this. How could people create something like this on their own? Well, A, there's two things going on there. One is that we're creating a manual and a package and everything so that you can start homobiles in your town. Cool. So it's really easy. And then if you do want to start homobiles in your town, like I'll even fly out there and I'll show you how to get started. You know, probably you'd have to do like a little bit of groundwork, research mm -hmm. about what the rules and laws are in your particular town, make sure that you have somebody that's going to help you like get through that stuff. But, you know, you need a phone and a car and like a community. And if you if all you have is like a couple of pals, you you start creating community like by being of service. We're pitching a reality show, Homobiles reality oh, show, cool. to the network. So we're gonna see what's up with that. But um, imagine if that gets off the ground, that people will go, well, "We want Homobiles New York. We want Homobiles L.A." But um, well, they'll want to pitch a reality show at each city, so they have different seasons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but. Um, but what I hope that that would accomplish is that people in Mobile, Alabama will look around and go, shit, howdy, Marge, will you know how Jolene, she can't ever get to church on Sunday because you know how she walked with a cane, but she makes a really mean cherry pie. Well, we could go get her, and maybe we can get that other lady, too, that can't ever get to church, and we'd just go around and pick everybody up and get into church. How about that? You know, it's like this is a new way of looking at money. A new way of looking at barter, a new way of looking at community. It's called shared economies, and everybody's doing it. And yeah, the people that are in power, the cab commissions and the, mm -hmm. you know, the monopolies of the, the industries, they're like, we've been doing it this way, and we've set up this controlled situation, and you're the employee, and you will do what we say, and you'll respond to these bells. And we're like, no, we're not responding to your bells anymore. We want to do this other thing. Mm -hmm. We're voting with our dollars. This is America. We like something, we throw a dollar at it, and then it happens. You know, we keep throwing more and more dollars. We make it rain and rain. It's really happening now. People want to spend their money on stuff that means something to them. Mm -hmm. Because right now, people feel hella fucking alienated. I can't even say alienated. They're alienated. You know, we are staring at Facebook all day long. And you might feel like you're kind of connected, but really in the end, where's your pals? Nowhere. Where's the meaning in your fucking life? You have to buy a fucking Apple computer to feel like you're a decent human being. Okay, well, maybe you want to go a step further than that. Well, now that Apple's not really as fabulous as we thought, maybe they're not as nice as we thought. Well, what else are you going to throw your money at? Well, I want my money to go to these people, and I want them to do this with it. I want to be connected to this group. Well, I think that's the next level of disconnect, too, because I think that you know, now we're being bombarded by charities everywhere we go. Like every time I walk into a dog store, would you like to donate $1, $5, or $10 to the Homeless Pet Society? Like, well, who is this society? Yeah. What are they actually doing with this money? How are they helping these pets? But no one can ever answer that question. Uh -huh. And then they're become, then it's, it's kind of crazy because it's even like Susan G. Komen for the fund. Then uh, there's this group that started up called Pink Watch that started exposing, okay, they're not doing everything ethical. But what's nice about what you're doing is you see where the money's going. It's direct, it's immediate, and it's in your community. Right. I mean, there's, there's an exchange happening that's, 
right in front of you where it's not this momentary feel good of, well, yeah, I pushed a button. I gave a dollar to save the homeless pets. I think maybe kind of, but I actually supported something that's tangible. That's right here. Right. It feels, uh, it feels more real Mm -hmm. for sure. And of course, within that you want to create like something really simple and really transparent so that anyone could look online at any time and see where did that money go? Who, who, who gets, who did what, what are the projects that we're working on? Like we're trying to work with, you know, we're trying to reach out to Lighthouse with Blind and they have like a program for gay blind people. And, you know, we want to work with HIV positive guys. They need a ride out to the vet's hospital, you know, all this stuff. Um, you should be able to look online and go, these are the people that you're helping. Yeah, that's what's that's so nice. I mean, you're actually offering people a business plan. You're offering, you're taking it to a level that you don't normally see with this stuff. And that's, that's really cool. Well, I know, but it started real simple. And what your original question was is like, how is the guy in Mobile, Alabama going to be able to relate to the reality show with a bunch of drag queens on it in San Francisco? Which is, you look at your own talents, you look at your community, and you go, what can I bring to my community? How can I help them? And it creates, ah, oh, it's just grassroots. It's gorgeousness. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was watching some Bruce Willis movie, but anyway, the guy, there was a, a guy quoting the Bible on there, and he's like, sloth, that's sloth, when you don't bring your talents and gifts. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that is sloth. Really, I feel like what I'm here on the planet, I'm, I'm here to do two things. I have some kind of purpose because I already have some innate talents, and I want to feel connected to other humans. What am I going to do? I could try to be something I'm not. I could go to school and try to learn some shit that's really hard. Or I could just go, what am I good at? Let's get better at it. And then let's bring that. And people are going to be appreciative. And they're going to give me whatever they got. So I'm going to make you laugh. And then somebody that knows how to fix my plumbing is going to come over and do that at cost. And then (laughs) pretty soon everybody's a happy punk rock queer whatever family mm-hmm. but not even just punk rock and queer that's the beauty is that we're that we become this intersection of many 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 different cultures which is my mom used to say this isn't a melting pot it's a salad bowl because they say that a lot america mm-hmm. is a melting pot uh but that requires that everyone assimilates right and the salad bowl concept is we're all mixed in together and we're all hanging out and we all work together really well but nobody has to give up their identity so cool that's that i have to say i just appreciate that you live a life that's that reflects art that is art and i really appreciate the honesty that you approach things with and i'm really grateful you're here today is there anything that you need to talk about i guess i i would just say to people just walk through fear and get some help from like your pals and talk about it. And then, I mean, I've lost a lot of pals recently to suicides. And I think it's part of that thing where we feel alone. I feel like there's not people that understand me. I'm all alone in my gender, sexuality, whatever identity or my money problems or it feels overwhelming. And you know what? You can't do it alone. Period, fucking dot. You're going to need help. And once you realize that you need help and you allow people to help you, 
life gets really exciting and beautiful and fun and an adventure. Until that happens, it's crushing. I would just say to people, there are tons of motherfuckers out there that love you. And don't be afraid to like pick up the phone and get real. Because we need you. We need the talents that you got and that you bring. And they're specific to you. That will never happen again in just this combination. So stay here. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Love you, pal. Love you, too. <laughs> Thanks, Eric Corey and Lenny Breedlove for bringing us that amazing conversation. All the music on today's episode, you can check out uh, tribe8.com. It's all from Role Models for America by Tribe8 featuring Lenny Breedlove on vocals. We're going to leave you with one more song from that album. This one entitled Daredevil Delivery.
killing pets Bus exhaust all day Nothing beats Two wheels downtown Living a messenger way Pay me to ride my bicycle They pay me to live free Thanks again for listening to Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.